You're listening to a sermon podcast from Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more info, visit sovgracechurch.ca. Well, if you could open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Today we'll be looking at the first two verses of 1 Timothy chapter 6 as we continue our series in 1 Timothy called Gospel Culture in God's Household. Now one of the challenges of preaching through an entire book of the Bible is that we can't ignore the hard parts. It would be so much easier for me or other pastors to cherry pick different verses or passages in the scriptures uh, that won't be offensive and that will be culturally relevant in obvious ways. But then what happens is that people will encounter the hard parts of scripture in their own personal Bible reading and they're left on their own to try to understand and to apply these very difficult texts. And that's not helpful. At best, what happens is that people develop the habit of skimming over the hard parts uh, to the point where they're actually skimming over vast portions of scripture to the point where they stop reading altogether because skimming is not very edifying. Or at worst, what they do is they carefully consider these hard parts and come to the wrong conclusion. And uh, they end up responding to these difficult parts by being offended and coming to the conclusion even that this can't be God's word. Instead, it is just an antiquated historical uh, record of what people believed in that historical moment. Well, we can't let that be the case, and that is why pastors must commit themselves to preaching not just parts of the counsel of God, not just the relevant parts of the counsel of God, but the whole counsel of God, including the hard parts. We must not skim them, write them off, or ignore them. We must address them head on so that we can understand these specific texts, but also grow in our confidence that this is indeed the word of God that speaks today. And that is a challenge. It's a challenge for me and it's a challenge for you as the listeners because it takes hard work. We need to to dig into the text of scripture. We need to consider the the wider biblical context and and we, we need to listen to this word even though it doesn't seem immediately relevant to our lives. We need to open our ears and soften our hearts by the grace of God and the help of the Spirit so that we're not offended by difficult texts, but instead give them a chance to speak to us and lead us closer to God. But once we do that hard work of studying these hard parts of Scripture, I believe that we will experience the joy of finding surprising applications that are very much relevant to our lives today. And that is certainly true of our text today, as the Apostle Paul turns our attention to the topic of slavery. Paul, as you may recall in our series, is in the middle of instructing Timothy on how Christians are to treat each other in the household of God, which is the church. How different groups of believers are to treat different groups of believers within the church. And he has just explained um, how we are to show honor to specific groups of people. 
Uh, the church is meant to show honor to godly widows who need financial provision. The church is to show double honor to the elders who rule well in the church. And here, he explains that Christian slaves are to show honor to their masters. It really is a natural um, extension of what Paul has been teaching because slaves were part of the households that they served. And so if we're going to address the household of God, uh, Paul must address Christian slaves. And what, is, what Paul is concerned about is whether the Christians in Timothy's church were honoring those that they owed honor to. And that includes the honor that Christian slaves owe to their masters. So let me read these two verses, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. This is the word of the Lord. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved." The title of this sermon is simply The Gospel and Slavery. And at first, these verses seem to imply that Paul is endorsing slavery. Indeed, these verses and verses like them, which we heard earlier in our scripture reading, have been historically used to justify and to promulgate the practice of slavery. But if we look at the wider biblical context, which we will do this morning, we will see that this just isn't the case. So what we're going to do today is uh, our, our structure of this sermon is going to begin with first the, the wider biblical context, the background teaching about how the scriptures approach the issue of slavery. Second, we're going to look at this specific text and why Paul wrote this in 1 Timothy. And then third, we're going to spend some time in application, considering how these principles apply to our lives today. So let's start with the background. When we are considering uh, the wider biblical context of any moral issue, we must always remember that just because God's people did something in the Bible it doesn't necessarily follow that God endorsed that practice. The best example of this is polygamy, the practice of, of a single man having multiple wives. Almost all of the early patriarchs had multiple wives. Abraham had two wives, Sarah and Hagar. Jacob had four wives. David had dozens of wives and concubines. And Solomon, who topped them all off, he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. If we just looked at the example of these godly men from the biblical uh, redemptive storyline, we might be tempted to conclude that polygamy is an accepted practice for God's people today. But when we look at Genesis 2 and we look at the creation narrative, we see that God's original intention for marriage was that it would be between one man and one woman. It was the two, the two who would become one flesh, not the three, not the four, not more than two, just two, two becoming one flesh. And by the time of the New Testament, 
polygamy had gone out the window as being a popular, acceptable mode of family life, and monogamy, that is, an exclusive relationship between one man and one woman had become firmly entrenched in the teaching of the early church. Both the Lord Jesus Christ and the apostles were consistent in teaching that a man should only be the husband of one wife. It did take some time for the Genesis 2 principle to work itself out in the, uh, the, the different cultures of the world. But it did happen as Christianity's influence spread throughout the world. To this day, every nation that is built on a Judeo-Christian foundation has defined marriage as monogamous. And that, of course, is changing as societies and cultures and laws and governments depart from their Judeo-Christian heritage and uh, redefine marriage um, to be whatever we want it to be. Now, the same is true of slavery. Yes, some of God's people practiced slavery. They owned their own slaves. But that doesn't mean that God endorsed it. Abraham's second wife, Hagar, was originally Sarah's slave. Solomon drafted slaves from nations that his father had defeated, and he put them to work to build the temple in Jerusalem. But just because they they did this doesn't mean that God was behind it, promoting it, or supporting it. In fact... What we see is that the seeds of the downfall of slavery were sown throughout Scripture, not just in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament. It begins with the teaching in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 that every human being is made in the image of God. Every single person has the inherent dignity of being made like God in order to represent God. And that is why any form of racism is untenable with the Christian faith. It is inconsistent with biblical teaching. God didn't make any race superior to others. He made us all, all human beings, equal in his image to be like him and to represent him in the world. We see this in how uh, the Old Testament addresses the rules and the laws regarding the treatment of slaves Beginning in Exodus, the Bible clearly forbids kidnapping people in order to make them slaves. Exodus chapter 21, verse 16. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. In other words, God's people were prohibited from invading a peaceful village or raiding their neighbor's home by sheer force of of power and military strength and seizing people and turning them into slaves. That was a capital offense that attracted the death penalty. And that that was a capital offense not only for the slave traders, but for those who purchased from the slave traders. If you stole a man or you owned a stolen man, you would be put to death but there were ways in which people could become slaves in other ways. Some people became slaves because of financial reasons. If they had debts that they couldn't repay, they might have had to sell themselves into slavery to pay off that debt. It was also customary for the people of a defeated nation to become slaves. And uh, most of the time they didn't complain because the choice was either death or slavery, and they would choose slavery with the hope of future redemption. 
But even in these situations, God provided laws that protected the rights of slaves. For example, in Exodus chapter 21, verse 2, Hebrew slaves are told that they would be automatically freed after serving for six years. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. And uh, uh, by, by way of just a footnote, on the year of Jubilee, their property, which they may have had to mortgage or sell because of their debts, would actually be restored to them. And so they weren't left with nothing. They were left with their historical land. And this principle applied equally to female slaves. Deuteronomy chapter 15. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. Well, that's, those are the protections for Hebrew slaves. Well, what about the protections for non-Hebrew slaves, for Gentile slaves? Well, in Exodus chapter 21, God says that if any slaves, whether Jew or Gentile, suffered abuse, physical abuse at the hands of their masters, then they would automatically be freed. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. That would be a pretty good deal, wouldn't it? I'd rather lose a tooth than lose an eye. Either one would result in a slave's freedom. And so what we see beginning in the earliest days of the Old Testament is that slaves were to be treated with dignity. God's law regarding slaves conferred to them rights and protections so that their masters couldn't do whatever they wanted to them. Every person, whether slave or free, is seen by God and valued. And that is one of the reasons why the slaves in Israel were to be included in the covenant of circumcision. They were to be joined in their masters as they were circumcised And they were even permitted to participate in the Passover feast. They were even entitled to rest on the Sabbath day. As the goodness and the blessings and the privileges of being God's people passed on to them. There are even times when God personally cared for slaves himself. When Sarah successively urged Abraham to cast away Hagar and Ishmael, the the slave woman she calls Hagar, It was God who provided for them personally in the wilderness. When a widow in 2 Kings chapter 4 was considering selling her children into slavery because she had debts that she couldn't repay, it was God who sent Elisha to her to fill up as many jars as they could gather with oil so that she could pay off her debts. And when God's people Israel were slaves in Egypt, crying out for help. It was God who heard their cries and sent to them a deliverer named Moses to rescue them from slavery. God's compassion has no limits, not even when it comes to slaves. Now these same ideas as we transition into the New Testament are present as well. You might remember in 1 Timothy, earlier on in our series in chapter 1, Paul gives a list of the kinds of people he describes as being lawless and disobedient. He calls them unholy and profane. And the people in this list are those who he says, they need the law, not grace. 
They're not yet in grace because they have not yet repented of their sins. They are still in their sins. And included in that list in 1 Timothy chapter 1 are those he calls enslavers. Enslavers. Enslavers are lawless and disobedient. Enslavers are unholy and profane. Enslavers are those who know nothing of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and are still condemned by God's law. And who were enslavers? Well, enslavers were those who stole people from their homes. Enslavers were people snatchers. Enslavers were those who were to be put to death, according to Exodus 21. And so what we see is that both Moses and Timothy, and and Paul writing in Timothy, writing as men inspired by the same spirit on behalf of the same God, denounced enslavement as evil. Enslavement is what characterized the slave trade that we are more familiar with, the European slave trade from the 16th to the 18th centuries, where slave traders would go to Africa and capture men, women, and children like animals, load them onto ships, and send them to Europe or to New England. Well, there's no question that both the Old and the New Testament denounce that practice as evil. Now, enslavement, this people-snatching practice, happened in Paul's time as well, and that's why he's denouncing it in chapter 1. But it wasn't the typical practice. Slavery in Paul's time was very different by nature than the European slave trade that we are more familiar with. In his commentary on 1 Timothy, Kent Hughes uh, collects his research on this issue and he writes about some of the characteristics of slavery in the times of Paul. First, he says almost 50% of slaves were freed before the age of 30. He says slaves could own property. They could even own their own slaves and they could save money to purchase their freedom when they had accumulated enough wealth. Slaves also were regularly given the social status of their owners, so that if you were a slave of a, of a wealthy benefactor or a merchant or a noble person, you would actually be dressed in fine clothes, and it would be hard to distinguish between those who were free and those who were slaves. And those slaves could be given significant responsibilities, the, the equivalent responsibilities of being a CEO or a business manager of, of a business. And some people actually sold themselves into slavery in order to gain Roman citizenship and to enter uh, all the benefits and privileges of Roman society. Now, of course, none of this justifies slavery, not even in Paul's time. Any kind of slavery which involves the concept that people are commodities to be sold and traded and used is contrary to the biblical principle that all men and women are created in the image of God. But it does help us to understand that Paul was writing to slaves in a very different context than we might assume. Now, one last bit of background before we get into the text itself. Although the Apostle Paul didn't advocate for the abolition of slavery, he believed that the gospel radically transformed the ways in which Christians viewed slavery. A good example is in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where Paul writes, were you a bondservant, that is, a slave, when called, that is, when you became a Christian? 
Don't be concerned about it. But then listen to what he says. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourselves of the opportunity. If you can get out of your status as a slave, I want you to take advantage of it. Uh, You know, even if you might be comfortable there as a slave, slavery is not fitting for those who belong to Christ. He continues, likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. And so he calls Christian slaves to seek their freedom if possible. And he says, Christian free men should not become slavery, s- slaves because they are already slaves of Christ. And it would be wrong for them, if they can help it, to, to belong to someone else. Colossians chapter 4 is another example of how the gospel transformed their views of slavery, where Paul addresses the masters. He says, masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And so what we see is that the gospel was meant to transform how Christian slaves saw slavery and how Christian masters saw slavery. Christian masters were to treat their slaves not as property to be used and abused, but as people made in the image of God who were to be treated with justice and fairness. And the warning that Paul gives them is that God is watching you and God will judge you if you mistreat your slaves because they belong to him. And over time, it is these gospel truths working themselves out in the thinking of men and women and generations and societies and cultures that would eventually lead to the abolition of slavery in the Western world. It was on the basis of these Christian truths and Christian principles that the slave trade would eventually be overturned. And for that, we can be very grateful. Now, with all this in mind, let's look at our text. The reason why I wanted to give you that background is to make it absolutely clear that these two verses are not all that God's word says about this topic of slavery. This is, this is just a, a, a subsection of what the Bible says on this very important issue. It goes much broader than what these verses say. So what, what is this text all about? Well, Paul has two concerns in these two verses. Verse one is about the relationship between Christian slaves and their masters. And verse two is about the relationship between Christian slaves and their Christian masters, okay? Verse one is about all masters and how Christian slaves are to relate to them. And verse two is specifically about how uh, Christian slaves are to relate to their Christian masters. Now let's remember that Paul is writing to members in Timothy's church. This church is in the city of Ephesus. And it's obvious from these verses that Christian slaves were part of Timothy's church. And when we consider what these Christian slaves would have believed, it gives us some understanding for why Paul found it necessary to write these verses. These Christian slaves had experienced spiritual freedom. Spiritual freedom that comes from the gospel through faith in Christ. They believed, like all believers, that God had adopted them. These Christian slaves, God had adopted them into his family. They believed that they were rich with spiritual blessings. And they believed that they were seated with Christ 
at God's right hand. This meant that the gospel had given them tremendous dignity and hope. It had revolutionized the ways in which they saw themselves. That they were no longer the scum of the earth. Property, commodities to be used and abused at the whims of their masters. But instead they were the precious, blood-bought children of God. In light of this, one of their temptations was to treat their earthly masters, their unbelieving earthly masters, with contempt. They could look down on their earthly masters because through the gospel, they had come to believe that people were no longer defined by what they owned or by what their status or position in life was. They were defined instead by their response to the gospel. If you repent and believe that Jesus is Lord and Savior, your sins are forgiven You are adopted into God's family and you are exalted to be and to live as a citizen of heaven. But if you do not repent and believe, it doesn't matter how much money, it doesn't matter how much influence, it doesn't matter how many titles or how much power you have. Everything you have and everything that you are will eventually fade away into obscurity. And that is all gloriously true. But Paul wanted to make it absolutely clear that this did not give Christian slaves license to dishonor and disrespect their masters. Instead, he says in verse one, they are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. They were to honor their masters, not just by their actions, but by their attitudes. They were to regard their masters, to see their masters, to view their masters in such a way that they saw them as worthy of all honor. What that tells us is that it wasn't only the honorable masters who were worthy of honor. It was all masters who were worthy of all honor. That's why Paul addresses in verse one, all all who are under a yoke as bondservants, all slaves, all slaves, whether you are a slave of a good master or whether you are a slave of a bad master, all slaves are to regard their masters as worthy of all honor. The apostle Peter makes this absolutely clear in 1 Peter chapter two when he says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Now, Paul explains why this was so important in the second half of verse one when he says, so that, and this is the reason why all who are under a yoke as bondservants must regard their masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Paul is concerned about the witness of the church. He's concerned about how the actions and the attitudes of the church, including the actions and attitudes of Christian slaves, would reflect on the name of God and on the teaching and doctrine of God. If the gospel produces disrespectful, self-righteous, self-indulgent people, then who's going to want to believe it? If those are the kinds of people who are attracted to this God of scripture, then who's going to want to worship him? 
Philip Ryken helps us to understand the historical context when he writes, the Romans commonly believed that slaves who dabbled in foreign religions would turn against their masters and overthrow the social order. If Christian slaves showed disrespect to their masters, then all of the Romans' worst suspicions about Christianity would be confirmed, bringing dishonor to both the name and the gospel of God. And so that, that, that's what was at stake in how Christian slaves treated their masters. This is why Paul wrote these verses to the church at Ephesus. The witness of the church, the advance of the gospel, and the glory of God's name were all at stake in how Christian slaves related to their masters. Now Paul's second concern is found in verse two. He says, those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since they who, those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. And so here what we see is that the Christian slaves aren't struggling to respect and honor their masters because their masters are, are non-Christians. They're actually struggling to respect and honor their masters because they are Christians, because they are believers. These slaves saw the gospel as producing a radical egalitarianism that that leveled and eliminated all social distinctions and categories. For them, this meant that, that Christian masters had no right to tell their Christian slaves what to do. They were brothers now. They were equals. They were co-heirs with Christ by grace. Now that is true. The gospel is certainly a radical message, and that is reflected in what Paul writes in Galatians 3 when he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Those are the kinds of radical things that that Paul could say as implications of the gospel, that none of us are better than others, that none of us have grounds to boast, that all of us who are in Christ are treated equally by God and are made one in his son. But that doesn't mean that all of our distinctions suddenly break down. Jews and Gentiles still had their distinct cultural differences to be celebrated. Men and women still have their own roles as Paul writes about in the context of marriage in other places. And slaves and free men still have their own economic positions in life. And so Paul urges these Christian slaves to not be disrespectful towards their Christian masters. Instead, they are to serve all the better, to serve with even greater excellence, precisely because their masters are Christians. They are believers and they are beloved They are believers in Christ. They are beloved by God and therefore should be given more honor, not less. The gospel is a radical message that has the power to transform entire societies. But the gospel can also be misused, abused, misapplied. It's like dynamite, If you use dynamite properly, you can accomplish amazing things. But if you use it improperly, it'll blow your house up. 
That was the threat that faced Timothy's church. These Christian slaves were at risk of taking glorious gospel truths and misapplying them in such a way that the name of God and the teaching of God would be reviled. But Paul steps in and he leads young Timothy to steer his church in the right direction, back to the narrow path by reminding them that the gospel doesn't produce rebellion. The gospel doesn't spread sedition or anarchy. Rather, it sends Christian slaves back to their masters, Christian slaves back to their workplaces as those who are transformed by the gospel of God, by the grace of God, filled with the power of the Spirit so that they are better workers, more faithful workers, more honoring servants than they ever were before. That is the true power of the gospel. So, how does this apply to us today? Obviously, none of us are Christian slaves, and I would expect that none of us are Christian masters. So how do we apply these principles, these verses to our lives today? Well, we may not be slaves, but all of us have something in common with slaves. And that is that we are all under authority. We are all under authority. Most of us are under the authority of our employers. All of us are under the authority of the government. Let me address each of these categories in turn. First, regarding employment. You know, when I was younger, and perhaps some of you can relate to this, I used to make a distinction between spiritual work and worldly work. Spiritual work is things like prayer and discipleship and Bible reading and preaching. The things that we do in church, that, that's what I wanted to do. Because those are the things that I saw as as lasting forever. Worldly work was anything that wasn't spiritual work. It was just kind of necessary evils. Uh, Things that we did to pay the bills so that we could devote more of our time to spiritual work. Well, our text today reminds us that there is no such thing as spiritual work and worldly work. All work, all work is spiritual work. Work. The Bible gives us many reasons for saying that all work is spiritual work. It's part of our creation mandate. The, the command that God gave to Adam and Eve to exercise dominion over all things. It's also part of how the, the spirit builds mature Christian character in us. There's a reason why uh, the early leaders in the Old Testament were trained as shepherds. You know, is that spiritual work? Well, that's the kind of work that God used to prepare them to lead his people. But our text today reminds us, it gives us another reason to see all work as spiritual. And and Paul says that all work is spiritual because our work affects our witness. Our work affects our witness. If there were such a thing, and there should not be such a thing, but if there were such a thing as a lazy Christian or an undependable Christian, or a disrespectful Christian, then the name of God and the teaching of God would be reviled. Christians should be the most dependable, most respectful, most diligent workers in their respective workplaces so that the name of God and the teaching of God would be respected rather than reviled. 
I love how Philip Ryken puts it in his commentary when he says, every time a Christian makes a delivery, turns in a project, hands in an expense account, makes a decision at a board meeting, pushes to get a sale, closes a deal, takes care of a patient, mops the floor, grades an exam, or decides it is time to leave work and go home, he or she is making some kind of statement about who Jesus is. A Christian who gives anything less than the very best effort puts Jesus Christ in a bad light. Now isn't that convicting? Isn't that revealing? We, we know that when we, we put Jesus in a bad light when we engage in crude joking, or when we complain, or when we join in office gossip. We, we know those things. But we also put Jesus in a bad light when we're not faithful with our responsibilities. We put Jesus in a bad light when we don't work faithfully, when we don't put in our best effort. Paul called this eye service. Eye service in Colossians 3 and Ephesians 6, the other passages where he addresses slaves. In Colossians 3, he says, Bond servants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. My friends, this is the key to Christian work in workplaces. It is to recognize that we are not ultimately serving men and women. We are serving the Lord Christ. And therefore, working for eye service, working to please people, working hard only when our boss is watching is not acceptable because Christ is always watching us and Christ calls us to do that work. This should be our reputation as Christian workers, that we are hardworking, faithful, dependable. We honor our employers. We honor those in authority over us. And that is the kind of reputation that will open doors for the gospel. Second, regarding the government. If the New Testament says one thing about how Christians are to relate to the government, it is that they, we are to honor them, to honor the government. It doesn't matter if we like the government or not. It doesn't matter if we agree with the government or not. If the Christian slaves in 1 Timothy were to regard their masters as worthy of all honor, all honor, not just the good and gentle masters among them, but the unjust masters among them, then how much more should we honor those who are over us. You know, we often think, well, we'll honor those who are worthy of it, who deserve it, who have earned the right to our honor. Well, the question of whether the government deserves honor is almost irrelevant. Christians are to regard, to see, to view the government as worthy of all honor, regardless of whether they deserve it. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't speak up or we can't share our opinions publicly. We live in a democracy that, that is built on and invites the voices and contributions of the people. The government invites us to speak up. The government invites us to share our concerns. The government even invites us to challenge its actions through debate. 
and even through legal challenges through the judicial branch of government if it comes down to it. But all of this can be done in a way that honors. That means that we don't slander the government. That means that we don't speak poorly about the government behind their backs. That means that we don't openly flaunt disobedience to the government because we don't like the laws that they have imposed. Instead, we we go out of our way to believe the best of them, to pray for them, and to submit so long as we can do so in good conscience. Now, there is no question that the government has made some dubious decisions during this pandemic. But that doesn't remove our responsibility to regard them as worthy of all honor. And we can honor them in private when we are speaking about them. And we can do that in public when we are speaking to them. You know, it just occurred to me that we, we seek to cultivate a culture of honoring one another in the church. And I love that about our church, where we, we, we encourage, we identify what we are encouraged by in the lives of others. Why, why do we not do the same with our government? If we are called to honor the government, why, why would we not write a letter not to complain, but to encourage? Perhaps we can tell the government about how the laws have impacted us, and express a desire for for the lockdown measures to lift, but we can do so in a way that honors, that, that, that communicates to them that we are grateful for the work that they're doing on behalf of our communities. We can tell them that we are praying for them and for their families. We can honor the government. You know, we live in a culture that is characterized by anger, It's an angry culture. And there are enough people out there who are angry, critical, and rebellious, especially towards the government in these days. As Christians, we have the opportunity to show them a better way, a way that involves thoughtful political engagement, a way that involves respectful communication, a way that makes the other person feel that they are being respected and honored. My friends, that is the Christian way. That is the true power of the gospel. If we are indeed sinners who are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, then we ought to be the humblest, meekest men and women in the world. And that humility and meekness ought to characterize every part of our lives from the ways that we deal with our children to the ways that we speak about and speak to the government. And when we do, when the gospel and the grace of Christ infuses the entirety of our lives, that is when the name of God and the teaching of God will not be reviled, but instead honored, cherished, and believed. Let's pray together. Father, we confess the temptation and perhaps the giving in to temptation to complain, grumble, and dishonor uh, the authorities that you have placed over us. And we want, um, we want to change. 
and we need your help to do so, to be people who honor those around us, people who are humble and who are always aware that we are the greatest sinner in any room that we walk into and that that realization would change the way we speak about people and how we speak to people. And we pray, Father, for our government. They've had to make some very difficult decisions and uh, decisions that we may struggle to understand. We pray, Father, that you would give them wisdom to lead our, our province, lead our country well in a way that will strengthen the church in a way that will glorify your name, in a way that will preserve life. But until that time comes, we pray that you would give us patience to wait and to learn to honor the authorities that are over us. Thank you for speaking to us this morning uh, through your most holy word. We ask that you would help us to trust and to obey. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.